Will you turn with me for a short time this evening to words which you will find in the second portion of Scripture read? The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18, and we might read again from verse 19. And he, that is Paul, came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. And the words in particular around with which God, with God's help our thoughts will gather are words in verse 21. I must by all means keep this feast. I must by all means keep this feast. In this chapter we find the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey in the course of which he comes to Ephesus, which was the capital of proconsular Asia. It was a city which carried on a flourishing trade and which had become the metropolis of Asia Minor. On his arrival there, he went into the synagogue and he proclaimed the gospel. And it appeared that the proclamation of this gospel had made an impression upon those who heard it. And consequently, when Paul intimated that he had to leave them, they prevailed upon him to stay. They tried to use all the influence in their, in their possession to prevent him from going on his way because they realized that they had benefited from his sojourn in their midst. But Paul was adamant, and he said, I must, he said, by all means keep this feast that cometh at Jerusalem. Which particular feast it was that Paul had in mind, we cannot be sure. Some commentators maintain that it was the Feast of Pentecost. There are others suggest that it might have been the Feast of Tabernacles or even the Feast of the Passover. But what concerns us this evening is not which particular feast it was that the Apostle had in mind and which he felt it so important to celebrate. What is important to us tonight is the determination which we find as he sets his face 
towards Jerusalem in order to keep this feast because he believed that it was his duty so to do. Now we are met together this evening on the eve of a feast, if God wills it, on a coming Sabbath day. And we know which feast it is which we have in mind. It is the New Testament Passover. It is that feast which was instituted by our Lord himself in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion when he gathered his disciples around him and when they shared a meal together and when he broke the bread and poured out the wine and when he said to them take eat this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance of me and so as we seek to prepare ourselves for the feast there are those in our midst who have been at the feast before and those who are looking forward expectantly to renewing their vows vows which some of you perhaps took many years ago vows of loyalty to your Lord and to your Savior and there may be some in whose hearts there is a desire to be present at the feast. But there is that note of uncertainty, that wondering whether they really should come, whether they really are the Lord's people, whether he really has been speaking to them and asking them what they intend to do. And there may be others still who have no intention of keeping the feast because they know that they have never had a real experience of his grace. And they know that the feast is for those who have first of all made their response to the gospel feast. But you are here tonight and we believe that the Lord has brought you here tonight. And we believe that perhaps the Lord has a message for you as you gather together with his people. Now as we look together at these words this evening, I want to speak simply. I want to speak directly. And I want to speak personally. I want to speak simply because we live in an age which is different from a former generation. It was a generation which had been brought up with a doctrinal background, but alas, that cannot be said of this age in which we live. But yet we rejoice to remember that the, that, that, that the gospel is something which is simple. Never let us forget that, no matter how we may cherish and enjoy doctrine and sound doctrine. The gospel is simple. 
It is the good news, good news which God has brought to sinful men and women. And when our Lord himself declared the gospel, he declared it not in a complex fashion, not in a complicated way, but he declared it in a simple manner. And I want to speak directly because that is what every ambassador of Christ is called upon to do. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We beseech you in Christ's name. Be ye reconciled to God. That is a direct message which comes to us from the Word of God. And I want to speak personally because as I indicated last night, the Gospel is something which is intensely personal. It's something which concerns you and something which concerns me as individuals. It's something which concerns our relationship to God the most important relationship which any man or ever, any woman can ever have. You may have important relationships in life. They may be all to the good. But here is the most important relationship of all. The relationship of a person's soul with his maker. And so I make no apologies for speaking personally to each and all of you, no matter in what particular situation you may find yourselves tonight. And as we look forward to this feast, expectantly on the part of his people, with a certain fear and trepidation on the part of others, and perhaps without much thought still on the part of, of others still, let us try, first of all, to suggest some things which prevent us from keeping the feast. And then try to suggest some reasons why we should keep the feast. In other words, we take a negative look, first of all. What are those things which prevent us from keeping the feast? And then we try to take a positive look. Why should we? What is the reason? What is the ultimate reason why I should keep this feast? And I would suggest, first of all, that one reason which sometimes prevents us from keeping the feast is the company among which we dwell. Now the Apostle Paul was in congenial company. He was in the company of believers in Ephesus because the word had been blessed to them. And this was demonstrated by the fact that they didn't want him to leave. If the word hadn't been blessed to them, they would have been glad to get rid of him at the first possible opportunity. But no, they wanted him to stay. And it must have been a tremendous temptation for him to stay. Because 
how refreshing it is to find God's word being blessed to find oneself in the company of believing people there's blessing to be received there <coughs> you remember the, that Philip had a similar experience in Samaria why there was a revival going on in Samaria Philip had gone to the city of Samaria and we read there in the 8th chapter of this, of, of this book that when Philip preached the gospel in Samaria there was great joy in that city because the gospel had transformed the lives of men and women and then a strange message came through the spirit to Philip Philip the spirit said I want you to leave Samaria and I want you to go down into the desert there leave Samaria where there is the possibility of a revival didn't that sound ridiculous to say the least of it if I was asked to go to another big city where perhaps there might be an equal opportunity of, of revival it make, might make some sense humanly speaking but no it was down into the desert and yet you remember how Philip in obedience to the leading of the spirit went down into the desert and you remember the sequel there was the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch who in turn took back the gospel to his own country and here there was the same, same temptation for the apostle but he said no I must he said by all means keep this feast which cometh at Jerusalem and I wonder if it has ever occurred to you my friends that sometimes even Christian people can be a hindrance to the furtherance of the gospel that seems an extraordinary thing you see you, you say I hear somebody say but is it you see sometimes we can become so happy and no wonder in good Christian fellowship we meet together regularly we have our we have our worship we have our Bible studies we have our times of prayer together and we become so wrapped up in this that we forget that the church is ever called to outreach we are called upon to go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature and sometimes we become so satisfied with our own gatherings with our own congregations that we are forgetful of the wider issue and in these days in which we live it's not necessary to send missionaries only to the far-off countries of the world we have a mission field at our very doorstep and we must see that we don't neglect it that we go forth with the glad tidings of redeeming love but then we notice further that sometimes the company of the world as distinct from the company of God's people can deter us from our path of duty 
You see, there is a certain allurement about the world. And it's so easy to become engrossed in its affairs, even in the legitimate affairs of the world. And we become so immersed in it that we have little or no time left to carry out our Christian duties and obligations. And sometimes, too, it may be that even those who are united to us by the ties of nature, who themselves have never tasted that the Lord is gracious, may seek to deter us from the path of duty. I remember hearing a story about a certain Jewish girl who was converted and naturally as a result of her conversion her parents were terribly shocked that a daughter of theirs should have left the faith of Judaism and embraced the Christian gospel. And they tried their best to make her change her mind. And one day her father met her in a room in the house and he said to her, my daughter, he said, I beseech of you to give up this new faith which you have embraced for the sake of your parents and for the sake of Judaism. And if you don't, he said, you will cease to be my daughter and you will have to leave my home. The daughter said, Father, give me a minute to think over this. The father said, certainly my daughter. She went over to the corner of her room where there was a piano. She sat down at the piano and she let her hands fall onto the keyboard. And she began to play and as she played she sang. And the words which came from her lips were these. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee destitute despised forsaken thou from hence mine all shall be and she rose and she faced her father she said father with all a daughter's love i love you and there are few things that i would not do to make you happy but there is one whom i love still more and because I love him, if it is necessary, I must cease to become your daughter. And she went out from that home, not to return. It cost her something. But she showed the same determination as the, as the apostle showed of old, that she was going to follow in the path of duty. But then I need not remind you that Satan sometimes seeks to prevent us from keeping the feast and he attacks sometimes in a very subtle way because the enemy of souls is a good, is a good student of psychology. He deals with certain group, different groups of people according to their, according to their temperament.
And so he comes along to, to, to some people and he says, look, he said, you're not thinking of keeping this feast, are you? You're not worthy to come to the table of the Lord. And you see, he's right. What he says is perfectly true because there are none worthy, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All our righteousnesses are before him but as, sim but as filthy rags. And if we seek to come in our own worthiness, we might as well forget about it altogether. And so Satan seeks to make us believe that we should wait until we are worthy. And this can be exceedingly dangerous because sometimes it may mean that we may never come. You see, Christ has provided the wedding garment. Christ has given the invitation. And the wedding garment is not our righteousness, but it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if by his grace that wedding garment has been given to us, if we are found resting upon him and him alone for our salvation, then surely, surely our place should be at the table of the Lord. And sometimes, sometimes we may find that there is what, might, what one might term a false modesty or a false humility on the part of some. You know you sometimes hear some people say, oh so and so has gone to the Lord's table, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't deign to take such a step as that. In other words, they're, they're doubting perhaps the sincerity of those who have taken this step but what they're doing is they're trying to give themselves a false pride or a, clothed under a false humility which makes them say in effect oh no I wouldn't come and yet I'm better than many of those who do come let us not allow the devil to use us in that way what the scripture tells us is this let a man examine himself not others let a man examine himself and we've got to give ourselves over to set to self-examination to a searching of heart to ask God to search our hearts and to search our spirits in order that we may find out by his grace whether we should be at the table of our Lord but yet again, sometimes say, but oh, you can't come to the table of the Lord because you're not invited. This is a feast. It's only important people who are invited to a feast and you have not received an invitation. But surely there is no one who has heard the gospel faithfully proclaimed who can say that. 
You remember how the rich man sent his servants into the highways and into the byways in order to compel them to come in, in order that his house might be full. It is recorded of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great preacher, that on one occasion somebody said to him, Who will be in heaven, Mr. Spurgeon? And his reply was, all who hear the gospel except those who refuse to believe all who hear the gospel except those who refuse to believe the gospel invitation goes out come all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest but then there are others who may say, well, you know, I would like to come. I believe it is my duty to come. But I am afraid that I will fail him. And one cannot but admire the sincerity which one finds so often behind thoughts like that. But let us remember for our encouragement that we are not called upon to come in our own strength. If anybody here should be contemplating coming to the table of the, of the Lord in their own strength, then I say, don't come. But if you're going to come in the strength of the Lord God, it's different. Because he gives his people strength. He gives his people courage to witness. And the Apostle Paul was not boasting in a vain glorious way when he said I can do all things through Christ and those are the two words which make the difference I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me and so let us go again let us search our hearts let us ask God to turn the searchlight of his word into our hearts and into our lives in order that we might ask ourselves whether like the apostle we are called upon to keep this feast which comes in a day or two. But let us now turn to the positive aspect we have been thinking of those things which may seek to prevent us from the path of duty. But let us now ask ourselves, what are the reasons? Are there any reasons? And if so, what are the reasons why we should obey this injunction? To begin with, this feast reminds us of the love of God. We're not sure, as I indicated earlier, which feast the Apostle had in mind here. But the feast to which we are called is the New Testament feast. The New Testament feast which was instit instituted by Christ. And here we have the proof of God's love. Here we see, as it were, 
God in action in the redemption of men in bringing men and women a lost humanity back to himself for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life and when we think of the feast our thoughts inevitably go to the upper room where our Lord was found with his disciples just before his crucifixion and where he instituted this as a reminder a reminder throughout all the ages of time as to what he was about to do and about what God had planned from all eternity for as often for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come a temporary institution until until the return of our Lord and a reminder of the wonder of his love and of the greatness of his sacrifice and then too surely this feast can well prove in the graciousness of God to be a deterrent to sin and an incentive to holiness you see we are so prone to become lukewarm in our love and in our affection for him and surely there's nothing nothing like a glimpse of the cross nothing like a reminder of the agony of our Savior to keep us from sin and to set our feet on the path of righteousness at the beginning of this century in a certain place in Wales there were three young lads who were found guilty of stealing they came before the magistrate and the magistrate gave them the option of either a fine or a period in jail two of them came from wealthy homes and the fine was paid and they went on their way but the third lad was the only son of a widow and there was no money to pay his fine and he was committed to prison and that dear woman because of her love for her son went out to get some work in order that she might at the earliest possible moment get enough money to pay the fine so that her boy might go free and the only work she could get was at the foot of a quarry face where there were quarrying stones and she had to remove them from the foot of, from the foot of the quarry and put them over to another place and as a result of all the falling stones her beautiful hands became all bruised and all battered but she she, she it, it mattered not a whip to her the love of her for her boy was predominant in her mind and at last the moment um, arrived when she had received enough money and immediately she went and she paid the fine 
and her boy was set free and she was standing at the door of the jail in order to welcome him as he came out. And they went home together and the boy was very touched as was only natural by what his mother had done. But a day or two later he met his former companions in crime and they said to him come and we'll do the same thing again and we'll not be caught this time and we'll make some money out of it. And he said to them oh it's all very well for you. You can go and engage in crime again if you want to because it costs you nothing. But I can never do wrong again without seeing my mother's bruised and broken hands before me reminding me of her love for me. And my dear friends, is that not exactly what the believer sees as he remembers his or her Savior's dying love? The broken body and the shed blood. And it was for me, it was for you, that he died upon the cross. And so here we have an incentive to keep away from sin and an incentive to live a life of holiness in closer dependence upon God. And then too surely in our Lord's Supper we have something which provides a nourishment for our souls. You see, we, we, we associate a feast or a table with food. It's a place where we are fed and where we are nourished and where we are strengthened. And we are called upon to be partakers of the bread of life. That bread which was broken for us. When the prodigal returned from the far country, he no longer desired the crusts on which he was living when he had been forsaken by his companions in revelry. Oh no, he was back in the, he was back in the father's home and he was prepared to accept of more nourishing food. And so it is with the believer. There is food provided for them. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Oh, that there was a hunger in our souls tonight. Oh, that there was a thirst in our souls tonight after righteousness. And if that hunger and that thirst is created through the gracious operation of God's Holy Spirit, how wonderful it will be to partake of it and to have our souls refreshed and nourished as together we gathered around the table of our Lord. And then too, the table is a place of fellowship. It's a feast. You know at certain and certain anniversaries we may have special little feasts or minor feasts at least, perhaps to celebrate a birthday perhaps to celebrate a special anniversary or something similar to that or a marriage and we enjoy fellowship together we enjoy the company of those who are met together because they're our friends 
And you see there is a real bond of fellowship between the true Israel of God. A bond of fellowship because they love their master. And they are united by faith to Jesus Christ. And they find in him the one who is their hope and their salvation. And so in this fellowship they find joy and happiness and peace. But surely the most important element of all in our keeping the feast is this, that God himself has commanded it of his people. This do, he says, in remembrance of me. And if God gives us our marching order, surely it is our duty to, to obey. For it is the desire of God that all those who know him should confess him. For with the heart we are told in the epistle to the Romans, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. There you have what may be an unseen transaction between the Holy Spirit and your soul, where there is this wonderful regeneration whereby we are born again by the gracious operation of God's Spirit. But then we are called upon to show forth what has taken place in our, in our life. We are called upon to show forth that to the world. And one way in which we can do that is by allying ourselves with the people of God, by showing the badge of our loyalty to him, and by displaying the banner and saying, I am the Lord's. In his grace, by his grace, he has saved me. And by the same grace, I am now seeking to make my witness for him. And so the real question for each one of us tonight is surely this. Do I know God? Has he dealt graciously with my soul? Have I reason to believe that he has spoken to me? That he has redeemed me? That I am found sheltering under that blood which was shed? that I believe the all-sufficient sacrifice has been offered up once and for all, and that I am resting upon the sufficiency of that sacrifice. And if he has had dealings with your soul, and if you believe that by his grace you are really his, then surely your place is at his table. All that fear God, says the psalmist, come here, I will tell, I will tell what he has done for my soul. And if the Lord has done something for your soul, my dear friend, perhaps even tonight he's been speaking to you, if the Lord has done something for your soul, then he'll give you strength show his praise in the congregation of his people and this final word I must by all means says the apostle 
keep this feast that cometh at Jerusalem. There was a certain attraction in Jerusalem for the Jew. It was the center, the seat of their worship, the place where the temple was, where they were accustomed to the worship of God. And surely these words remind us that there is a heavenly Jerusalem where his people shall one day feast with him in the glory above. Will you be there, my friend, when there will be that time of glad reunion with the saints of God who have gone on ahead, when there will be no more tears and no more doubts and no more pain and no more sorrow because the former things will have passed away. What a wonderful prospect. What a joyous prospect to look forward. Our salvation is all of grace. We have nothing to do with it ourselves and yet we are called upon to accept it. Take him as your Lord and as your Savior tonight and go forth to witness to the fact that he is at dealings with your soul. And may the Lord enable you so to do. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee for that wondrous love which thou hast manifested us in manifested toward us in Jesus Christ thy son our lord and savior we are poor needy sinful creatures and yet the lord careth for us lord speak to us tonight speak to us in thy wondrous love and in thy tender mercy May we feel and know that thou art here in our midst, working out thine own gracious purposes in our hearts and in our lives. And may we be made willing in a day of thy power, so that we may acknowledge thee as our Lord, as our Redeemer, as our King. Abide with us throughout what remains of this day. And when we go to rest, do thou go with us into the night watches. Thou art the one who slumbers not nor sleeps. To thee the darkness and the light are both alike. And so we pray, O Lord, that in the darkness of the night, if we are awake, that our thoughts may be of thee. And if it be thy good will that we see the morning light, we pray that we may be enabled to go forth to serve thee. And all this we ask with the pardon of our every sin, for the Redeemer's sake.